Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Coming up, Sean McDonald. He teaches negotiation at the Asper School of Business. We'll talk to him about the transit dispute. Rob Creaser from the Mounted Police Professional Association of Canada will look back with us on the BC murders and the manhunt that followed. And Dr. Cyrus Dirksen will be on the podcast. We'll talk with him about the psychology of these mass shootings. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. We have now issued our, our final offer, and we need to be crystal clear uh, with the ATU uh, that it is in everyone's best interest that they uh, approve the offer we've made uh, and that we get on with business. We really do want Winnipeggers to understand uh, that if they rely on the bus uh, for their jobs, for school, for any other purpose, uh, that they really need to be considering uh, how they're going to go about their day otherwise. It's a tactic that they use to intimidate our members. They should really reconsider coming back to the table and to be able to do uh, come back uh, with a fair and equitable uh, contract that's uh, beneficial to both sides and the taxpayers. That is the city and the union in the transit dispute. Will it end or will the next step be a lockout or a strike? Joining us now to talk about it, somebody who teaches negotiation at Asper School of Business at the U of M, Sean McDonald. Sean, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. First day of holidays and you're making time for me. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, happy any time to do it. <laughs> Thank you. So what do you make of this? It appears as though we might be heading for a lockout. It looks like the city yeah. might jump, and the members are going to vote on the city's final, final offer, so we'll see. But, it, you know, rather than maybe see a strike in September when students are going back to school, we may see a lockout before that. It, initial thoughts on the dispute as it sits right now. Okay, well... I think this is a bad one, Hal, and let me sort of start it this way. Both organizations have not bathed themselves in glory along this uh, entire process. For the one hand, if you look at the union, the union just has to come out and say it. Look, we want a strike to have maximum effect or maximum discomfort, and that occurs after Labor Day. So that's clearly, I think, what they want to do. Management, the city, says we don't want that to happen, so we want to sort of trigger a lockout as soon as possible. Um, I have a few sort of issues here. The, the first is why the heck has the city waited till now, getting to the middle of August, to think, hmm, maybe we'll lock them out now? They could have locked them out at the beginning of July, And they would have had the effect uh, of going through the process, finalizing positions, and probably getting a deal. So the the city's really late to the party on this one. Second of all, you just played in your introductory clip that uh, Michael Jack's saying this is the final offer. It's not the final offer. It's the latest offer. There's going to be another offer to come. So... I, I don't really understand some of the heated up rhetoric for this. But ultimately, I think what's, a, what's most perplexing about this is they start now 
to take away some of the privileges that the bus drivers have had for a long, long time and then say, oh, by the way, now vote on our offer. Um, it would be like if a politician says, uh, vote for me, but just before the election, I'm going to uh, raise your taxes and cut all the services. Now vote for me. So they're they're trying to incite a rejection. So I think what's going to go down is the following. The members will vote. The vote will be a massive rejection by the workers. That will incite a step to have a lockout that'll happen probably close to August 17th. And then after that, they'll battle it out. And at some point, hopefully sooner than later, uh, we'll get transit service back together. But I, I guess I, I think strategically there's, there's things that have me shaking my head. Yeah. So mistakes have been made, as you said, on both sides. And we now find yeah. ourselves in this position where the people that are going to be hurt the most are the ones who need yeah. the bus to get around, right? Yeah. Oh, and this is, uh, you know, most labor disputes begin a long, long time before you get to a strike. Uh, and it's not surprising that some organizations have more strikes than others. Transit amazingly hasn't had a strike for 43 years. Um, that's amazing in any organization to go that long. But the fact that it's happening now, I think, indicates that there's been a change in culture at transit, and that's too bad. I would say this. The city has to realize that not all city workers are, are the same. There's some city workers that have been basically caught red-handed goofing off on the job, and then there's bus drivers. And the sense of bus drivers is no one gets rich being a bus driver. And they put up with a lot of stuff. It's almost always a split shift. And let's just say it. Uh, they lost one of theirs a couple of years ago. And I am sure that there are hundreds of drivers that are saying, you know, I go by that stop many times. I have situations like this. And and I don't feel that the organization is, has got my back at times. And I think there's an anger building amongst the workers that's changing the culture. And so if, if I say there's going to be a lockout this time, I have another prediction, and that is uh, there'll be a lockout in a couple of years from now also because I, th I think the relationship has, has been poisoned a lot, and, and that's too bad. And when you have situations like this, uh, where we're facing a lockout or a strike, so much of how this continues is based on where the public is at, right? Do you sense yeah. the public is with the drivers, or do you think the public is with the city? My guess is they're with the drivers for this reason. They have personal relationships with drivers, and nobody... I don't think it's possible to really goof off while you're driving a bus. So they see how hard these folks work. They see personally from people who are bad actors on the bus what they have to deal with uh, that is not necessarily always uh, dangerous, but is certainly unpleasant. And they, they also know that these are not the fat cats. So I think that there is some degree of, of sympathy for the drivers. Now, that can change pretty quick once this inconvenience uh, 
of the law code occurs. But I, I think right now the city would be well. They need a kumbaya moment with the bus drivers. They need to get together and, and start to acknowledge some of the challenges. And, and I just don't get it, Hal, why they, you know, last minute start taking away a, a few of the uh, seniority rights that, that the drivers had. Not Now it's not the time. This is not a good negotiation strategy but but for both of them i i really believe that probably the leadership on both sides um you know are, are not helping them the case i think that they're probably sick and tired of one another you know they've they've plowed this field many many times now and going back and forth and I hope they're wise enough to bring in external third parties. And I hope they're wise enough. One of the things we talk about in negotiation is make a bigger deal. Bring in other stuff. Realize that not everybody places the same importance on things. Otherwise, if you're just grinding it away on wages and wages and wages, um, that's how things break down. So, so I think there needs to be some breath of fresh air with the players and also they they got to look at just other issues that can trigger some compromise on both sides so you just said what we need to see in order for this to yeah. uh, end differently do you sense that one or both sides might blink or do you feel like they're locked in no eventually the drivers will blink the reason for it is uh, um they can't afford to be out forever. Now, the the public pressure on the city is also going to be quite extreme. The drivers don't want to go on strike. They don't have the money like NHL players to absorb that. And second of all, the city has to realize that if they didn't like the reputation they have right now, uh, wait a couple of weeks and it could go further. So because of that, I'm not predicting that this goes a long time. Uh, there's there's too much pressure on both sides to get it done. But I think what what the city did this week was to trigger it to happen now. I just wonder why they didn't do it at the beginning of July. And one more quick question on this, and then I want to yeah. ask you another question. Um, sure. On this, uh, you know, here's what I don't understand about. I understand strikes. I realize that you're fighting yeah. for more you're fighting for rights you're you're fighting for pensions i understand why but strikes don't make sense for the workers financially do they you you never, never you never. never ever get that money back do you yep yep um there's a few things first of all within the culture of the unions they would they would have a philosophy of paying it forward meaning someone back in the past uh took a bullet for me so i'm going to do that so that's part of the culture within the unions um Second of all, I I honestly believe in this one that the drivers want to make a statement to say, look at us, you know, give us some credit, give us some appreciation and love, and you'll and and you're not, so you'll see that you're going to miss us quite a bit. So it's not a financial thing. I think on this one, and again, this is not a striking organization. It's been 43 years. But I think on this specific case of negotiations, it's not just about the money. It's about, frankly, a lot of bruised feelings. And that's why I'm sort of you know, circling back to this issue of what's the culture 
that they've created there, both by union and by management, and and, and they've got a the, both sides got to get together and 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 start you know behaving better so that we don't come to this crisis that we now are in. Really good stuff, Sean. One final question. We've got the Southern Chiefs demonstrating on the yep. Trans-Canada at the Manitoba-Ontario border starting at 5.30 yep. this afternoon. I don't want to get into the issues here or anything, right. but I do want to ask you something that a lot of people, including myself, have been pointing out. When you protest, you're trying to get attention, but when you're yep. trying to win the public over to your side by blocking them as they head to the yeah. cottage, it, it, I don't understand. I, I, there has to be a better way to get your point to, out there to make your point without pissing people off. Yeah, it's a high-risk strategy, what, what they're doing. I did notice that they're spreading around some of the pain, meaning that they're going in different places in the party, so they're not just, you know, they're not just isolating one group that's continually inconvenience. It's a risk. Um, on the one hand, I think that there might be some sympathy and then you lose it by by pulling, I don't want to call it a stunt, but, uh, but by pulling an action like this, uh, they're going to lose some support. But at the other end, if you look at what the chiefs say, they'll say, you didn't even know about us until we blocked the road. Um, and we need to get noticed so that we can sort of advance things. So um, it's it's risky. I wouldn't do it many times at all because they're going to lose some credibility. Uh, they're going to lose some support. But they've made, I believe, that calculation that even though they're going to lose some support, they're going to gain because more people know about them. And maybe, you know, if this is being a one-off and that they're trying to sort of not just isolate one one particular group of folks, but but go to different places over the next, I guess, month or so. Uh, that they're trying to be responsible. So we'll, you know, we'll we'll see. They're taking a big risk, um, but it it may work to their favor if the public views that they have legitimate concerns and that they're trying to be friendly and responsible. Sean, thanks a lot for this, and enjoy your vacation. Thanks, man. All right, uh, before we get into a chat with our next guest here, and I'll introduce him properly in just a moment, Global News reporter Joe Scarpelli has uh, just filed a report on a new search for evidence. Police are back on the Nelson River. Members of the search and rescue team hit the water at around noon local time. This boat launch is where the staging area was set up on Wednesday when the bodies were recovered. We didn't have this kind of access on uh, that day, so this gives you an idea of how police had to get the bodies. They had to park at this dock and then take about a 15-minute boat ride to where the bodies were located in a very tough to reach spot, load the bodies on the boat and then drive them back to this loading dock. So now police are heading back there today to see if uh, any clues were left behind, if they missed any evidence, they're gonna, they're gonna search the area where the bodies were found and the surrounding area. About uh, six search and rescue members are, uh, are, uh, are gonna be searching the area. They're gonna be spl split up in threes so three in one location and another three will be dropped off at another location to uh, go over the area for about uh, four hours, I'm told. 
And police tell us we will be getting an update after the search is complete. Uh, Global News reporter Joe Scarpelli up in northern Manitoba where the manhunt is over, but the investigation continues. And joining us now to talk talk about this, uh, the aftermath, the fallout after the manhunt, Rob Creaser, he's the communications officer with the Mounted Police Professional Association of Canada. Rob, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for doing this. I've been listening to your comments throughout this, and I, I think you've got, uh, uh, you know, some interesting insight. And so I wanted to ask you uh, today, uh, what have we learned from the past two or three weeks with this manhunt, what happened, the search for them, and then uh, now where we're at? Well, I think what we're learning or what we have learned is it's critical um, that the public be engaged. And I think in this particular case, they were. And that's what ultimately led us to an area where uh, these two bodies were located. Um, It sounds, uh, I haven't been to the area in Manitoba where much of the search has been concentrated, but it sounds extremely rugged terrain, just in terms of what they had to go to once the bodies were located to get them out. Um, it's been difficult searching, and it's certainly taken its toll, not only on the members doing the frontline searching, but the the people that have been uh, tasked with evaluating um, public information and sightings, etc. I don't want to minimize the crimes that were committed here because they were horrible, but why did this become the manhunt that it was? Why is it because some international media picked up on the story? Uh, because we don't have manhunts or, you know, every time there's a bad person out there. No, but we have three dead bodies and 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 we needed answers to those questions. You have to remember that this whole situation started out with the death of three people in northern BC, and these two young people had been reported missing. It started out as a missing persons investigation. And then once police uh, obtained some evidence or information, they went from missing to to being suspects in the murder of these three people in British Columbia. And I think, you know, that's the most heinous crime in the criminal code is murder. So I I think it certainly added to it that two of the deceased people in northern BC were from other parts of the world. But, um, you know, I think think the RCMP needed um, public information and needed to to engage the public in, in tracking these folks down. And as to why it took so long... Um, you know, they they had gone through three different provinces and in some pretty very rugged terrain. So that's why it, it became expansive and why the media be- became a critical piece in helping us uh, track these people down. Yeah, and I don't want to take away from what the Mounties did in this case, and I certainly, as I said at the start, I don't want to minimize the crimes. Murders are horrible. There were three of them in this case. It's just not every time uh, there's, I don't know, some cases just seem to get more attention, and this one got a lot of attention. Yes, bad guys on the loose, people are dead, but uh, I think sometimes other cases that can be just as horrific 
don't get the same attention, don't end up in a manhunt. That was that was my point, and I appreciate your answer. Um, what if, It may be too soon here, but hindsight is twenty twenty. What have we learned from this? Um, what would we maybe do differently next time if there is a next time? Very difficult question, and I'm afraid one that I can't answer because I'm not privy to all the uh, information that the police had at their disposal when um, when those bodies were found in northern BC and what led them to eventually uh, believe that these two young men were involved in those deaths. So without having that kind of information, sure. I think it's it's key that they they got the pictures of these gentlemen out as quickly as we could. And like why it lasted so long only you know, the two people that once they were identified, and I don't know whether they had access to the media, I would imagine they did, they chose not to turn themselves in. And that's what happens when uh, people try and duck for cover, so to speak, that it it takes as long as it takes to, to find them. And what about now, this took a lot of hours, uh, they covered a lot of areas, what will what will be the impact on officers and, and Mounties? Some, something like this, it, it has to uh, wear them out. Oh, it'll take a huge toll, uh, not only emotionally and physically for those people that were, especially physically for the frontline search, searchers, but emotionally too. You can well imagine that they're they're chasing down murder suspects they're in extremely rugged and dangerous terrain and they don't know where these guys are and they know that they're armed they know that they've had access to guns so i mean you're you have to be hyper vigilant and my only hope is is that the folks that were involved especially the frontline folks are given um time off with loved ones to uh, to recuperate because it's going to be it's going to be needed. Rob, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for answering my questions. And again, as this has gone on, I've heard some comments from you, and I, I think they've been really important uh, in telling this story. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Rob Creaser is the communications officer at the Mounted Police Professional Association of Canada. <laughs> A couple of headlines here with Dr. Cyrus on uh, the mass shootings that we saw in the States and some interesting stuff uh, from that. Dr. Cyrus, good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's good to be here. Yes. Is it nice out there? It looks nice. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful weekend. I can't wait till 401. Okay. The couple of headlines here, and they kind of have to do with the mass shootings in the States. The first one is the math of cruelty. And then the second one, is it guns or mental illness? Which, you know, a lot of people have been weighing in on that question. Let's start with the math of cruelty. Well, I mean, this is just kind of doing a little bit of math, uh, which is around kind of how many people are actually affected by these things. And I think, you know, what was concluded is that it's kind of an, a hard number to come to, you know, because you, you look at, you know, 50 people dying, uh, you know, some people who are shooting, and then you look at, you know, calculated by something like how many people do these people personally know, how many right. do they know in uh, kind of a more distant way, how many people are coming into contact with them, and then when you do, like, social media and, you know, like the six degrees of separation between people out there, maybe it's now it's less than six. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it becomes kind of this massive group of people, if somebody dies in a tragic way, it affects 
it affects entire pop, which is entire populations, which is different than maybe how it used to be when uh, it was more localized and there was less ability to quickly communicate about things, less graphic imagery around these things being transported around. You know, if you think about uh, you know newspapers within the way photography was different, it just didn't kind of spread. And and is it good for a population to really be exposed to all of the tragedy that's happening in a nation that has millions of people in it and these things are just kind of blossoming or blooming out into the entire mm-hmm. country? And uh, so... You know, it's not just being cruel to one person. It's being cruel kind of to... And to all their families, everybody. all their friends, mm-hmm. even strangers, right? Yeah. We saw that with the manhunt mm-hmm. here in Canada yeah. and the three BC murder victims, right? Yeah. We saw the same thing. We were all in some way impacted by that. And you can see this in like, we have a... We, we recognize vicarious trauma. When you hear stories and people, you know, first responders are affected by this, obviously. Uh, you know, news broadcasters are affected by this. People and then people who are more connected or consumed by uh, media or are very connected to a lot of people. You know, like I, I talk to people in certain communities where there are higher suicide rates and they're just experiencing death after death in their community. Vicarious trauma is a real thing and and now it's being kind of spread in this very graphic way so far and people are fascinated by it, it attracts we talked about that last week people are fascinated by it so what is the impact of that and I don't think we really know but I think it it's uh, it can be frightening I just had that conversation with Rob Creaser from the Mounted Police Professional Association of Canada last mm. half hour and we were talking about that and I said the impact of this manhunt in northern mm. Manitoba yep on Mounties that were involved and how that impacts them. And he mm-hmm. said, I hope they get some time with their families to yeah. kind of decompress, right? And and another point I was trying to make with him is, uh, you know, uh, there was an Australian that was murdered and there mm-hmm. was an American. Mm-hmm. And when international media mm-hmm. picks up on a story, I mean, you, you know, to your point of mm-hmm. the math, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so many people all around the world now will be affected by something that, 10, 15, 20 years ago, yeah. they may not ever have heard of. Never even heard of. And that and trauma isn't about what happened. Trauma is about your perception and your experience of what happened. So there's so many things that could be happening next door to somebody. And like you often hear, it's like, I had no idea. I thought they were such nice people. And you know, this and this was happening. Oh my goodness. You weren't traumatized by it happening next door. You're only traumatized when you actually know about what happened, when you see what happened. And now that can be spread and uh, and I'm, I'm not against the spreading of it per se, uh, but there is a cost because now you have everybody seeing this uh, in this very you know visceral and graphic and personal way where it feels very close to you. Yeah. All mm-hmm. right. Second headline, and this is a good one. We're certainly hear this uh, hearing this after the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton. Is it guns or mental illness? I think maybe the short answer is both. Right. But but I don't know. You tell me, Doc. It's, you know, it's hard to actually get a good read on this. I mean, you see uh, statistics around this, and um, I can't help kind of getting this impression that to some extent certain disorders are overrepresented in um, mass shootings like uh, psychosis or schizophrenia. Now, in populations, it's quite a small number of people who have this, and there's still a very small minority of people who are experiencing these things who are mass murderers, maybe not a very small minority, like 20 to 25% of mass shooters have mental illness, either psychosis or delusional. Um, and 
So let me stop you there. 20 to 25 percent of shooters have mental illness of some kind. Well, actually, it's higher than that. 48 percent have some kind of mental illness. If you include ADHD, learning disorders, depression, more milder or or common uh, mental illnesses. So compare that number then to the general public. What is it in the general public? Well, it's not that it's not 20 or 25 percent for the psychosis or delusions. That's overrepresented, in my opinion. Uh, but and the 48% is actually, you know, it depends on who you ask. Mm. Uh, it's a whole field of what they call epidemiology, you know, like looking at the rates of mental illness. And 48% is kind of the rate of mental illness in their population. So mm. um, it's not that overrepresented overall. So if somebody's depressed or has a learning disorder, it doesn't mean that they're like should be targeted and may, you know held back from having a gun or something like that. Now, you could maybe get to an argument like, oh, you know, maybe some people with serious mental illness, you know, like a schizophrenia issue or issue with a delusional disorder maybe should be prevented. But unfortunately, um, it's not that simple because oftentimes these uh, kind of mass shootings or, or, you know, very tragic events happen for people who aren't identified yet as having these disorders. Undiagnosed, Undiagnosed, right? right. It often happens in these kind of critical periods, like maybe the first psychosis. You know, the person hasn't been diagnosed yet. It's not that they have gone off their medication. They just don't even know about this yet. It has not even over yet. And so to actually think that you can identify this early on, I mean, we're... Our, our, uh, our mental metal, medical system is trying very hard to identify people very early. We have programs to do that, uh, but it's hard to diagnose somebody before they have their first episode. You really can't. Yeah. Uh, you can't go on mental, like you can't go on family history. Well, you have an uncle who has schizophrenia, so you can't have a gun. Like you can't do that. Well, at least in my opinion, you can't. And uh, so, yeah, you're left with this. It's still a problem. It might be somewhat overrepresented, but it's certainly not as high as people talk about. It's like certainly not every person who's out there being a mass murderer. The majority of people are uh, kind of have, you know, what you call maybe a typical mental health or disgruntled employees or um, jilted lovers, people who are kind of uh, maybe accumulating injustice in their life. Sometimes uh, people might call it like a an injustice counter or somebody who's accumulating injustices. Yeah, you don't have to have mental illness to be no. uh, someone who goes out and does this. No, exactly. And and if you look at overall at the rates of mental health, it doesn't seem to be overrepresented overall. It, it's more correlated, it seems, with guns. It's hard to say, though, because there's all these different studies coming out. And I find psychology overall really does stumble when people have strong opinions. So whenever I look at research around things that are really political... Um, you have to read that research with an extra grain of salt because psychological research has a lot of things to prevent it from being influenced by researcher bias because it's it can be influenced by researcher bias. So right. if we have a lot of strong motivations in researchers to find certain things, it's just more likely that they're going to find it. So let me ask you something else, and maybe you can't weigh in on this, or or, or maybe you will. I don't know. Uh, so in the states after the mass shootings, mm-hmm. there was a lot. There were a lot of people that said, "Oh, it's." Things that President Trump says, the tone, even the tone in the country, not just mm-hmm. with him, but he's mm-hmm. he's an easy uh, person to point at. Sure. But other people. So if somebody is out there and they are suffering with, say, uh, you know, I don't want to, a, a mental illness right. of some kind, mm-hmm. one of the ones that's yeah, maybe yeah. more evident in mass shooters, can they be triggered by something they see in the media or hear from a politician or are, right. are there... You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. are there triggers now that maybe weren't there 20 years ago? I now, don't know. If you were to look at the, the these psychosis, if it's really an initial psychosis, if we're looking at like, okay, it's a little bit more likely amongst people who are having their first psychotic break. I have uh, a lot of skepticism to believe that President Trump, in something he said, triggered somebody's initial psychosis. 
that is hard for me to believe. These things That's are a pretty big leap. Yeah, eh? it's, it's usually yeah. induced by significant amounts of stress and genetic potential. So yeah. to think that something that President Trump said would actually kind of put that in a person that's I don't know if it's impossible that it that it would cause that. I mean, it depends where people are at, I guess. But I, I don't. I think that it's very slim. Mm. Um, it's very slim. I think it actually, in my opinion, might be more more likely amongst people who are actually mentally well to be influenced by somebody like mental, like Donald Trump, than right. somebody who's actually experiencing Al- their first psychosis. Almost like being radicalized. Like they yeah. talk about being radicalized. I don't want to say how strong that yeah, would be, but I right. would think it'd even be more likely there yeah. because what you're actually seeing is somebody who's kind of looking at President Trump as a model mm. or something like that and kind of justifying their behavior. They're already describing Frontold and yeah. President Trump, I don't know what he said, but like yeah. maybe has said something that that, that f- makes that person feel like it's more acceptable. I don't know, but mm-hmm. that I don't say it's likely, but it's more yeah. likely. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because these are all questions that that come from this, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, this stuff happens, and you know, is can you legislate? Can you you know increase gun control and, mm. and deal with it that way? Right. I had a retired special FBI agent on on the air the other day, and he pointed to attacks with vans these days mm-hmm. and gun uh, and uh, knives, and you know, unfortunately, with some of these weapons that are available in the states, uh, you can kill a lot of people very quickly, and so that that makes a, a terrible situation that mm-hmm. much worse in many. To try to find a logical connection between people having more guns and gun violence, I think you're going to trip up. To actually draw a straight line between we have more guns, so now we have more violence, I don't think you're going to be able to draw a straight line. Uh, I think researchers are still trying to understand why there's something called the mere, exp- like the, uh, well, it's kind of like a mere exposure effect. It's like you have this this gun and so then it makes you more likely. But I do know that, you know, if I was talking to somebody who was suicidal and they had a gun sitting beside them, I'd tell them to put a pillow over it. Right. Uh, there is an effect of being able to see a gun that makes you more likely to use it. Hmm. And so again, to draw that straight line to say, well, they could find something else, they could use a van. Yeah. Of course, like yeah. there's there's no real logic right. behind the connection between having guns and using guns. But there does seem to be research supporting the fact that having guns around makes it more likely that there's going to be gun violence. If they're available. If they're around, if people are seeing them, if they're using mm. them, if they know how to use them, uh, those people are more likely to kind of have that happen. Again, it's it's a connection that's, that again, we have psychological research, which mm. is prone to bias when people have strong motivations. But I, I can tell you on an everyday level, when we're dealing with guns, uh, that's what I would do. And there's a reason for it. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.